Before today's episode, we acknowledge the Yagara people and the Turbal people as the traditional custodians of Mianjin, Brisbane, the lands on which this podcast was recorded. This podcast contains descriptions of domestic and family violence that listeners may find confronting, challenging or triggering. Audience discretion is advised. Domestic violence is a national crisis. Targeting the most likely domestic violence murderers. Domestic violence protocols and culture will be put under the microscope. Queensland's silent killer. On average, one woman a week and one man a month is killed by a current or former partner. Here's a sobering statistic. There are more than 100,000 cases of domestic violence in Queensland every year. Welcome to Behind the Doors of Domestic Violence, presented by the Queensland Police Service. My name's Dean Cooper and I'll be the host of this podcast series. I'm a facilitator of a men's behavioural change program working to change the belief systems of men who perpetrate violence. I also work with Griffith University's Make Bystander program to empower a community of bystanders to be someone who does something about domestic and family violence in our community. So today's episode of the podcast, we'll be talking with our two guests, Dave and Joe, from a lived experience perspective. So welcome today to the podcast. And Joe, if I could start with you, could you please share your story um, as you feel comfortable to do so from your perspective as a survivor of domestic and family violence? Eight years ago, I knew nothing about domestic violence other than I thought it was something that happened to other people. In fact, I knew so little about DV that I didn't recognise that it was happening in my life and it had been for five years. The definition of domestic and family violence also includes a pattern of behaviour, intimidation, harassment and abuse. There was a significant incident at my home one evening. A bystander called the police and I could no longer avoid what was happening in my life. So I left my DV situation and I moved forwards. Unfortunately, I had a really good job at the time. I loved my job, um, but my workplace didn't really understand DV. And so things became more difficult. And four weeks after I left my DV situation, I also left my job. My career fell over. Everything in life had fallen over, really. And so I gradually rebuilt incrementally. I had support from Brisbane Domestic Violence Service who were amazing and then as I started to learn more and more about domestic violence I became an ambassador for BDVS and that opportunity allowed me to learn more about DV beyond the lens of my own experience and today I run a business that supports workplaces to address domestic and family violence Mm. so connecting you know my experience in the workplace but also in the home. Yeah, I really resonate with that, with the idea of having to, um, we make it seem easy for survivors to just leave your job, just get away, and yet everything we do all day is tied into work. We spend most of our days in the workplace, so it's such a significant part of who we become. Absolutely. Yeah, that's um, that's great. You're dedicated to that now. That's amazing. Um, And Dave, just before we um, share your story as Hannah Clark's best friend, I think it's really important that we speak about um, who Hannah was. The ABC has confirmed the couple was going through a bitter separation. She had been allegedly doused with petrol moments before the car exploded. A devastating morning for emergency services that rocked a quiet suburban street. The three little children didn't stand a chance. An act of family violence has left three young children dead and a mother in a critical condition. Sometimes survivors um, you know or victims of domestic and family violence what happened to them becomes their story and what people remember them by so just want to give you the opportunity if you'd like to tell us a bit about Hannah. In the last few years since Hannah and the kids passed it's it's really been about what happened to them and it's been really hard to sort of talk to people about who she was and 
um, how special she was to all the people in her lives. I get emotional every time anyone asks me this question because she was um, an incredible human. Um, for me, she was, like you said, she was my best friend. So we started our friendship through CrossFit. We started training together. I started training at her gym, and um, her ex-partner's gym. And I trained there for a couple of years, and then we, because we were the same age, we were pretty much at the same level of fitness. I say that knowing very well that she was much fitter than I was, um, <laughs> or than I am. Um, but yeah, we started training together more and more. Yeah. Uh, and that's when, you know, I started to do just sessions with her and Baxter and the kids. I guess part of that kind of speaks to the boundaries that were set up by Baxter as well. Our friendship couldn't grow beyond the gym because yeah. if we had at any point tried to have even a, a coffee um, without him around, then that would have created some, some dramas for her and her life. Eight phones were hidden in Hannah's home to spy on her. She was the first person to high-five everyone after a workout. She was the first person to walk over to someone as they were struggling through a workout and cheer them on, even because usually she'd finished before most people. <laughs> she just really cared about everyone being able to be the best that they could. She was really that person for me. She knew what was coming up for me, what mattered to me, yeah. what, what was really important. And I think that's really the essence of who she is, is that she just wanted everyone to be okay. She yeah. wanted everyone to be happy. And she loved her kids more than anything. They were her everything. The sea of soft toys, flowers, teddies has continued to grow throughout the day as people have come to lay more flowers where this despicable act of domestic violence took place. They were all very different and unique in their own ways, but they all adored Hannah as well. Um, Aaliyah was really disciplined, really tough, really smart. She already read an autobiography by Tia Kletumi. Like she was yeah, wow. she was six and she was already doing that. Yep. Um, She's reading at a higher level than me. Yeah. <laughs> Trey was he was obsessed with his mum, also obsessed with being strong. Uh, that was his thing. He liked to pick up the biggest and heaviest things at the gym. Yeah. And Anna, her and I developed a pretty close bond. I think we're very similar people, even though she was only four. Um, and I'm 30 years older now, um, but we, she just, she just really cared a lot about, similar to Han, she really wanted everyone else to be happy. Yeah. I remember every time I would go to the gym to train with them, I would hear them as I drove in the driveway, Anna would be yelling out, Dave's here, Dave's here, mm -hmm. Dave's here. At the end of the workout, after we'd done everything, we, I would take them out to the car. Um, they all wanted to be carried, so I would carry Leanna in one arm, Trey in the other mm -hmm. arm, and Leah would be on my back um, and piggyback her out to the car. And I put them all in the car. And one day before I put Anna in the car, she gave me this really big hug. And the next day I spoke to Han and I said to Han, that was a really nice hug that Anna mm -hmm. gave me yesterday. And then Han said, yeah, I know I spoke to her about it when we got home. And I was like, that was a beautiful hug you gave Dave. Mm -hmm. And she was like, yeah, I know. He's just always by himself. So I feel like sometimes he needs big hugs. Oh, and um, yeah, that was like, that was who Anna was. That was who Han yeah. was, you know. Yeah. They just yeah. always knew what other people needed. Oh, thank you for sharing. That's, um, yeah, beautiful. Your relationship with them is beautiful. Joe, I was really fascinated with your story that you mentioned that you were in this relationship for a number of years and very early on you were kind of unaware of what domestic and family violence was. And can you, I guess, sort of describe your progression from maybe not understanding your, your situation at the time to then the realisation? There was a lot of talk in the media about domestic and family violence and I had a really clear stereotype in my head about what kind of a person might be in a DV situation, mm. which I now, in hindsight, know is not correct at all. Mm. 
we lived in a beautiful part of Brisbane. We lived in a, our home was lovely. We drove nice cars, both had good jobs. And to the outside world, my greatest challenge was probably having a small child and a busy job. But I didn't know what I didn't know. And there were different kinds of violence that was were being perpetrated. And I guess now some of it was probably quite obvious. Um, but the more subtle, the more coercive control, um, the less physical forms of violence, I just didn't correlate that that was domestic violence. When the police attended the event, um, I was then referred to Brisbane Domestic Violence Service and I started working with a support worker. And in our first session, she used something called the Wheel of Power and Control. And to anyone that's listening that doesn't know what that tool is, it's a tool that is often used either by specialist support staff or trainers to explain what is domestic violence and the interrelationship between different types of violence. So it's a wheel, it's got about eight slices in it. Um, and each one refers to a different kind of violence. And as I looked at it, I sort of went tick, 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 and this big penny dropped. And although it wasn't a pleasant realisation, there was relief in that realisation because at last I had a label for what had happened. And by understanding what had happened, I was then able to progress with that support and learn more and understand it. But I certainly didn't walk away, even when the police had been in attendance, even when they were talking about domestic violence orders and everything, I still couldn't correlate my life with that term. And now I see it was textbook violence, but just didn't realise it back then. What was that moment like? I guess it might have felt like being seen for the first time, having a label to put on it. What was it like coming to that realisation? It was validating and horrific at the same time. Mm. So it was... I'm not going crazy. This is something that's happened. This is something that's serious. And I've done the right thing to take action. Mm. But equally, then thinking, well, what does that make me? Am I now a victim of violence? Am mm. I a survivor? What do I want to refer to myself in? You know, if I'm going to label myself, what does that look like for me? How much is this going to define me moving forwards? Mm. And so there was a lot of processing to do just in that realisation. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that a lot of the times we see um, you mentioned labels um, quite a lot where we have either a grieved you know victim survivor or however someone might label it do you think there's in addition to some stereotypes of a relationship where domestic violence is occurring is there a, a common misunderstanding that people get wrong Absolutely. And I think there's a number of them. I think that people sometimes make an assumption that somebody that is impacted by violence is just passively taking it, that they're not resisting the violence, mm. which we know isn't the case. Mm. I think that people think that somebody may have done something to provoke the situation. And I sort of flippantly say when I'm doing training, if I had a dollar for every time someone had said to me, why didn't you leave? Why did you get into the relationship? Why did you stay in the relationship? Mm. If I had a dollar for every time I'd be asked, that I'd be actually recording this podcast on my own private yeah. yacht in the Bahamas right now <laughs> because it's the most common thing that yeah. people say. It's sort of victim shaming and blaming. So I think people jump to a whole range of assumptions mm. and knowing now what I know and looking in the rearview mirror of my experience, I can mm. see that those assumptions are generally pretty inaccurate. If I could give you one more dollar, why didn't you leave? If people are listening and they're trying to wrap their head around why someone wouldn't leave, um, are you able to provide some, some insight into, into the decision, I guess, to stay or leave? There were two things that led to that. And the mm. first one was not realising what it was. Typical sort of controlling situation, I felt that I was to blame. Mm. I was sort of made to feel in that situation that I had played a part in this and I deserved it. Mm. I had a two-year-old. 
And it's rare I get upset when I talk about my experience, mm. but when I think about that little person yeah. and what I wanted for them in their life, mm -hmm. that was a very big decision to make. And I, at the time of leaving, I remember someone saying, you have a two-year-old, you can't leave. Mm. But I said, it's because I have a two-year-old, I have to leave. Definitely my child was a big part of that decision to stay or go. Yeah. I was listening to Joe just then talk about when you were ticking the boxes, going through the wheel and ticking everything. I remember having a conversation with Han. It would have been in December, January of 2019 and 2020 when she had had that similar discussion with the police. She'd sat down and they'd shown her the wheel. They'd talked to her about it. And I remember her saying to me that when they showed it to her, she was like, you know, I, they sat me down and they were talking about coercive control or all this stuff about domestic violence. And I was looking at it and going through it all and I was like, this is my life. This is what I live every day. It must have been such a big, you know, revelation yeah. to realise. It was. For her, she was like, I can't believe that this is actually what it is. And it was similar to what you said. It was horrific but validating at the same time for her. So I can only imagine what that was like. And I sat there on the phone thinking, even in that moment, thinking there's no way. Like, because the lens I had of what domestic violence was, was that it was violent. He didn't hit her yet. He hadn't laid a hand on her yet. So how was this possible? And then I think it, in recent years, the media's done a great job in putting a spotlight on domestic violence. And mm -hmm. I think now, when I think about conversations that I couldn't possibly have had eight years ago, I can have now quite freely. Mm -hmm. And people are open to talk about domestic violence. If I talk about what I do for a living, people are happy to have that conversation. So I think the media's done a great job, but I think because it's always the stories about people losing their lives, and whilst they have to be covered, I think that sometimes what that does is if somebody's not in a physically violent relationship, they don't correlate their situation with violence because what they're seeing on the news is always about the physical side mm. of domestic violence. So I, I think that sometimes that can be an issue as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, for me, what it was. Up until 2020, domestic violence was violence. It was physical. It wasn't emotional. It wasn't coercive controlling. It was physical. So when Han sat there and said that to me, even in that moment, I was still like, how is that possible? We obviously had more conversations and I got more of an understanding of what she was talking about as, as we started to unpack it. And I started to realise that this was actually much more unsafe than I thought it was, even though he hadn't laid a hand on her, you know, in, in any way that we would see in the news or anything like that until obviously it did. Mm. As a bystander to what was happening, can you recall a moment where you realised that it was really unsafe? Yeah, I do. Um, Baxter had made it very obvious that it was really unsafe. Um, Hannah and I were still talking in January and early February because I wanted to make sure she felt supported. But each time we spoke, he had somehow found out that we'd had a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and even though the conversations were purely, I'm here for you if you need anything, let me know kind of thing, he was not okay with that. And he would message me or call me out for coffee and say, hey, if you support me, you can't support her. And that was when I sort of stopped talking mm -hmm. to her because it was only through text messages or something like that that we would really kept contact or through phone calls. Um, we didn't see each other because we didn't want that to create any more problems for her mm. and that was you know when he had said that in the last time that he'd known that we'd I'd sent her a message or that I'd we'd spoken that he was like all right no you can't do that anymore I was like all right I should stop because I'm just going to make things worse for her her life's just going to get a lot worse yeah um that was probably the that was <clears throat> that was probably the worst thing that I did 
in that whole thing was to not reach out to her again after that point um, because she'd reached out to me. Mm. Um, even though she'd sent me a message about a CrossFit comp she wanted to do later that year. Mm. And I just didn't respond. And then uh, she sent a message a day or two later saying, I'm sorry, I just missed my friend. And um, I didn't respond to that either because I was worried that if I did, he was going to do something to make her life more uncomfortable or a lot worse because he was, you know, mm. he was already doing that and he was telling me that it, he would. And so I didn't do anything. Mm. And that was early February. Mm. And then on the 19th of February, he murdered them all anyway. This has been the hardest week of our lives, but my wife Suzanne and my son Nat and I have been overwhelmed by the number of people who have gone out of their way to offer their support and their help. How would you explain generally to the public what coercive control is when someone hears that? What are they looking for? What does it feel like? What should bystanders or someone who's supporting a loved one, what would they be looking for when we're thinking of coercive control? From my perspective, in my experience, it was there was a very clear difference in power in the relationship. Baxter had clear decision-making power over every decision that they made. Even when they weren't financially in a good position, he still ensured that she wasn't going out and looking for a career. Mm. Like she could get a part-time job in a place where he knew the people who were working there, but going out and having a career of her own was very unlikely opportunity for Han. He made the decisions around where they went and what they did and when they did it and all that sort of stuff. You could tell it wasn't a collective decision-making. I remember one night, it was her 30th birthday, we went somewhere around South Bank, had some drinks, and um, she wanted to go out with a couple of her friends who were there. I was driving that night, so I offered to drive them all to wherever it was that they wanted to go. And Baxter said, oh, no, we're going to go home. I looked at Hannah, and I knew she wanted to go out with her friends. And I was like, are you going to go out? And she was like, oh, yeah, I want to go out with Nikki and, and Lou. I looked at him and said, oh, well, why don't I just, I'll drop them out, then I can drop you home, and everyone's happy, everyone's doing what they want. And he's like, no, 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 it's all good, don't worry about it. And I was like, oh, no, it's fine, thinking in my head that he just didn't want me to go to the trouble of dropping them out and dropping Mm -hmm. him home and all that sort of stuff. And then he turned back to me and he said, no, no, she's coming home. And I looked at her and I was confused at the time and I was like, that seems a bit odd, like he kind of telling you what to do, you're a grown woman, you know, what's going on? And she looked at me and just went, no, don't worry about it, it's fine. And in that moment, for me, it was like there's there's a clear imbalance here of power. And then that was, you know, earlier on when I spoke to her towards the end, she spoke a lot about her experience of walking on eggshells. When we had that conversation around um, where she was ticking the boxes of the coercive control wheel, she was like, you know, it's like every day I'm just whenever he's home, I'm walking on eggshells. So from my perspective, he really controlled everything that they did. Mm. And she was really worried about putting a foot wrong. Yeah. Um, Because if she stepped out of line, then obviously there wasn't any physical violence, but there was emotional abuse. Mm. There was using the children. And it's a pattern of behaviour. And I think it's always, I always think it's almost making that person's life get smaller and smaller and smaller until all roads lead to that other person. They can't make a decision or behave in a way that they want to behave Mm. unless it's in accordance with that person. You know, I look back at my life and my life just got smaller and smaller. Friends were no longer welcome at the home. Mm. There wasn't that financial autonomy. I remember even two years after leaving, I would go out for coffee catch-ups with friends and I would, let's say I was saying I was going to be out for an hour. Once it got to sort of half an hour in, 40 minutes in, I'd get really twitchy 
thinking, Where, where's my handbag? Where's my keys? I need to be back on time. And even a couple of years after leaving the situation, mm. I'd still get twitchy at a coffee, yeah. thinking, and then sort of bringing myself back to the present and going, actually, I don't need to be anywhere because it's okay, it's just me now. But mm. that feeling of there's potential ramifications mm. um, if I'm later than this. When I was first witness to these kinds of things, my mindset because I had that lens around what domestic violence was and what you know grown adults should be able to do and all that sort of stuff my idea was why isn't she saying that no I'm going out with my friends mm -hmm. you know why that was what I was thinking about after we got to the point where we were actually having the discussion around her experience and she was saying she was walking on eggshells I understood that the reason she's not doing it is not because she's not tough enough or whatever it is or whatever yeah. these stereotypes are it, it's because that she is surviving you yeah. know it's just fear and i'm, I'm making yeah mm -hmm. i'm making the decision that's going to make sure that everyone is going to be safe that's mm -hmm. the decision i'm making yeah how i start to after speaking to you both and sort of speaking to women who have survived through domestic and family violence relationships and describe their experience of coercive control how i understand it in my mind it's like an interest that you pay like you may be able to go to coffee with your friends you may be able to get a new job or whatever it is but whatever you are permitted to do in that relationship you pay interest on that and it's like that cost benefit when you said it's not worth it sometimes you'd be looking at it and thinking what am i going to pay with interest on this decision and that's kind of how i start to see that power imbalance in my mind when I picture it through a very simple mind I um, see it as a bit of an imbalance of power yeah. as an interest you pay that's such a great definition mm. that's a really great way to explain it in both your experiences do you think generally the public might have um, an idea of a stereotype of what a relationship where domestic and family violence is occurring looks like before I knew what I know now, mm. I assumed it was always people living in lower socioeconomic situations, probably alcohol or drugs involved, potentially somebody on the wrong side of the law, probably not a great amount of education, those sort of things. Now knowing what I know, mm. I couldn't have been further from the truth. Yeah, and I had similar assumptions. I mean, I grew up in a pretty poor home, lots of abuse and violence, and it was in relation to my mum's drug addiction and lots of you know things that wrap around inside of a really strong drug addiction and the types of houses you live in whether or not you're going to school whether or not you have clothes all those sorts of things so I grew up in what might be considered the stereotypical idea of what could contribute to a domestic violence home but mm. as I've worked in this space for the last couple of years I've realized as Joe said that might be some people who experience it but it broadens out far beyond those experiences. really doesn't discriminate at no. all in terms of where these behaviors have been perpetrated whether they're in low socioeconomic homes or really nice suburbs high profile business people um, you know all the way to unemployed it, it really doesn't discriminate against and really evident in your um, where you sit in different spectrums in terms of you know your lifestyle at the time and your upbringing and then obviously your relationship with Hannah as well um, couldn't have been on two opposite ends of a stereotype that yeah. the public might hold. Joe, can you please share a little bit about what it's like to leave an unsafe relationship? What was that journey like and how did you start to, to rebuild? Oh my goodness. When I look back, there's only a couple of times that I get upset when I talk about my story. And one is when I talk about my little child. Mm. And the other is when I look at the woman that walked away. And, you know, I wish... Yeah. Sorry. I wish I could give that woman a hug today um, because it was so hard. We know statistically that it takes a woman seven to eight times to leave a DV relationship permanently. 
And if you can only imagine, and I'm sure some people listening to this will have been through DV, statistics tell us they will. So I'm sure they'll relate to this. But if you haven't, if you can just imagine, DV isn't just about the breakup of a relationship Mm. or relationship problems. It's like a hand grenade being thrown into someone's life. Mm. Someone might lose their relationship and we often forget that they may have loved or loved that person. They may be unable to see their children every day as a result. They may be displaced, having to move house. We know that DV is the leading cause of homelessness in women and children in Australia today. They might lose their jobs. They might be financially impacted. They may not have that support system around them anymore because they may have been socially isolated. And so you've got somebody that is at their most vulnerable. Their mental health may have been compromised. Their physical health may have been compromised. They're they're at their most vulnerable and we're expecting them to be at their strongest and make these decisions to leave all of those things and leave familiarity towards safety. So... It's a really, really hard, hard time. Mm. And it was the hardest thing to leave and then not go back. Yeah. I look now at what's happened since and I'm really proud of how things have come and I love what I do for my job now and I think that from a situation that made no sense to me, through my work I'm able to make sense of what happened and have some purpose aligned to what occurred. But I can't explain how difficult that time was in my life it was definitely the most difficult point in my life and it probably was difficult for two years until things really started getting back on track yeah i'm really sorry that that this has happened in your life but on the flip i'm so grateful that you've come out of it the other side and been able to not only survive and leave the relationship but to then make it your work to positively impact so many other people and giving permission hearing about people coming to you and sharing their experiences as well just the permissions that you give others to do the same is really powerful thank you when thinking back to the woman that left that relationship there was all those barriers in place around what stopped you from leaving but what do you think helped you leave the relationship what helped you start to rebuild very early on in my leaving I learned a little bit about children and domestic violence and um, again going back to Brisbane Domestic Violence Service they had a support worker that specialised in children and I had a session with her and we talked about the potential impacts to my child and I was not going to have history repeat itself Mm. and so he was my compass or my beacon and there was that determination. If we can really just nurture our children, love them, protect them, they feel safe, they feel loved, then we're going to have a generation that are not going to be perpetrators. So I would say that was my primary. It wasn't going to beat me. It had beaten me for five years and I didn't even know it. It Mm. was not going to have another day. So that was my just put one foot in front of the other for my child and I and that's what got us through and it really was just tackling each day as it came Mm. and those days did get easier and easier and I think something that's really really important is that we share these stories of hope because when you step out of a DV situation you're stepping into a really dark tunnel and Mm. you don't know how long that tunnel might be there are lots of potential twists and turns in that tunnel so it's really important that for those people that are just stepping into that tunnel, those of us that have emerged, shine those little beacons along the way so that those people know that they're not on their own and they will get through this and they will move forwards. They won't be defined by this forever and there are people out there that can help them. So I think that's really important that we 
Domestic violence is a complex, sensitive and difficult topic. It's incredibly confronting. But for those people, and there are many of them that are in DV situations, we really need to be there to help guide them to safety and then to recovery afterwards. Yeah. On that as well, just as, as being a beacon, I think it's so important that if we are someone, we may not be someone who works in domestic violence services or in the police or whoever it might be who's got some authority to support someone as they work through leaving a relationship, but we can still help shine a light. We can still hold a torch for someone as their friend or as someone who they might come to for support. And I think, you know, in my experiences I shared, it's so important to not put any conditions or expiries around that sort of stuff. Like when someone comes to you and says, oh, I'm trying to leave, we know it probably takes more than the first time for them to leave. Like more often than not, it's seven or eight times for them to leave. So don't say, well, you didn't do the things I told you to do. So, you know, I'm not going to be here for you if you go back to that relationship. It's really about understanding that they're being pulled back in for very valid reasons for themselves. And we need to just stay there with them and keep shining that light and keep pointing it in the direction that we hope that they eventually are safe enough to go down. Mm. Um, I think that's so important. We never, never, ever take a step away from supporting that person just because maybe they went back into the relationship or they took a step that you didn't think they should take. We don't know what they're dealing with and what they're going through. It's so nuanced inside of the world of trying to leave a domestic violence relationship. So just stay by their side wherever you can, whenever you can be there. And, and then as it becomes more and more safe for them to do so, they will take those steps. I think um, that's such an important point, Dave, just to be there. Yes, you will need to be patient. You'll need to be understanding, empathic, all of those things that are so important. But whether somebody's listening as a bystander that has got domestic violence happening in, a, in, you know, in their sphere, in their pro personal life, or whether it's police officers who may be attending the same home and thinking, why is this, oh, you know, I've, we've, dealt with this situation before while we back here it's really important to understand those complexities and what mm. might be happening in that person's life that means that they haven't gone and stayed away yeah, yeah listening to you both makes me really uh, reflect on it that people who might be um, wanting to show up for someone who's leaving a relationship or wanting to support someone through it might be thinking you know but I'm not a psychologist I'm not a social worker I'm not a specialist you know DB case worker or manager but I think after hearing you both the things that are really important is that the beacons of hope and bystanders around just present themselves as things opposite to what's occurring in the home where at the home they're being told what to do they're degraded they're belittled and then what we can do is just to be there and be the opposite we we can be kind, we can listen, we can um, empower, um, we can give autonomy into decision-making about um, the, those little steps forward, that one foot in front of the other you were saying. Mm -hmm. So I really think that on top of the stereotypes of relationships, people think that you have to have the degree or the course in, in domestic and family violence to be someone who can actually do something. One of the challenges is human nature when someone comes to us and says that they've got an issue, we want to try and fix it and solve it and work with them towards the solution and say, okay, this is what you're going to do and these are the steps you're going to take and we want to get to that solution with them. But I think the really important thing about being a bystander and someone who may not have any of those, you know, those social work or, um, you know, police skills or whatever it might be, is that our role as a bystander isn't to fix the problem. Mm. Our role is just to contribute to the solution. And maybe that is just shining light in one direction. Maybe that is, you know, helping them go towards a service mm. that they might need to reach out to or sitting with them as they as they write their police report or whatever it might be. It, it's, it's really just we're only making contributions to the solution that works best for that person. We're not there to fix the problem for them. A really important question is 
how can I help? What do you need from yeah. me? Mm. That then tells the person that they've got their hands on the steering wheel. We're not driving, they are. Mm. But it also lets them know that we're in their corner, whatever that looks like. Mm. I always say that when we do training, we train people to be well-informed traffic controllers. They understand what DV is. They recognise the warning signs. They have the confidence to lean in and have that really difficult conversation, but then guide that person to the support that they need. So, yeah, there's not an expectation that bystanders have got this magic wand and they can fix everything, but they're there to walk along alongside the person, whatever that looks like for them. In Australia, one woman is killed by an intimate partner every week. One in three women has experienced physical violence since the age of 15. One in five, the victim of sexual violence. My situation is quite different from a lot of people. I had a conversation with a therapist about literally fleeing, going home, packing up a truck and getting out. But that didn't sit comfortably with me for a range of reasons. And I got home that day after seeing this person and I just walked into the house and just said, I think we're done. That was it. It was that simple. And I made a decision that I wasn't leaving there and then because the house needed to be sold. And I knew that the sale of that house would be another form of control. That if I didn't stick there and while the house was sold the house wouldn't sell and it would just drag on forever and I thought I'd rather have a really difficult extra couple of months than this drag on for years having an asset collectively so I actually stayed for another couple of months while that transaction took place to make sure that that was you know that occurred and there was a line drawn under that chapter so that I could then fully move on those few months weren't easy months at all but I would still do the same thing again today because I needed that chapter to close. That might be different if I felt the situation was less and less safe. So I'm not suggesting that my approach would suit everybody, Mm. but for me to have that finality. He wasn't surprised by my decision, but I think given the extent of the incident that had occurred previously a couple of days prior, I think at that point he was feeling shame for what he'd done, as he should have done. And so I don't think it was a great surprise, but it's like anything with grief. You know, there's different stages that you go through. So the anger came, I think there was a bit of acceptance and then there was anger and grief and emotion and all of those different stages that people go through during a time of grief. Once you left the relationship, was there a tactic to get you back into the relationship? Being charming, Um, this person was very charming, like a lot of people that use violence, offering me the world, trying to leverage the way I felt about our family unit and my child were all sort of emotional levers to try and bring me back. That continued for about 15 months after I left the situation and then they met someone else and moved on. But yeah, at some points I had to involve the police where it just became too much. And Dave, looking back and when you speak of your experience and how powerful it is listening to you and how you share your story, what do you want people to take away from your story? What hindsight and learnings um, would you like people to leave with? Um, it's difficult to answer that question on a few levels. For a period of time, Baxter was a friend of mine. And right up until almost the very end of the line, he was a, I considered him a friend. Um, and I think one of the most challenging things for people who are witness to or, or bystanders to someone's relationship that might be a domestic violence relationship is viewing 
the perpetrator through that lens. If they've been close to that person for a long period of time, they find it very, like I found it very difficult to see him as someone, as Hannah explained to me through through her experience of coercive control and her walking on eggshells, I found it really difficult. At some point, I looked up to him. Um, you know, I, I was resistant to believing her experience because I wanted to think that he was the person I thought he was. Mm. Um, I think in hindsight, the lesson there for me was to believe her regardless of my opinion of him um, and to give her that support regardless of what I thought he was. And then to have probably different conversations with him around his behaviour, what he was doing and how to seek the help that he needed to change his path. The other big lesson was that you just don't walk away. The, um, yeah, I, you know, go out and have these conversations with people about how we can be someone who does something, <sighs> feeling somewhat like a hypocrite because at the time where someone needed me to be that person the most, I wasn't, um, And I know that I'm not responsible for what he did. And I'm not really responsible for what I didn't know, but I still wasn't there with her, by her till the end. That's the hardest thing to walk around with. If everything turned out the way it did, I would much prefer it to be that she knew till the very end that I was there for her, that I loved her, that she was my best friend and that I would always be there for her. But in those 10 days between her sending me that message that, you know, I just miss my friend and me sitting by my phone thinking I just have to call her, I just need to put it on a private number and give her a call. In that period, if I'd have just done it once, then at least she would have certainly had that. Now we, you know, it's, yeah. Oh man, this is a tough one. Yeah. I know the conversation she was having with people around her at the time about how she was frustrated that he had turned everyone against her and all that sort of stuff. And her friends were, who were still able to talk to her were saying, you know, it's not that. They just want to make sure that they don't make him do anything. And that's one of the things that we all think mm -hmm. is that, well, what if I make it worse? What if I make him do this? But he's always going to make the decisions that he's going to make. And those decisions are on him. Um, if we say to someone we love them and we care for them and we're there for them, there's no way that that could in any way contribute to someone murdering their family. Mm. And whilst now you know what you know, with the information you had back then, you mm. were acting in the best of intent for Hannah. Everything was done with a really pure intent to, you know, reduce risk for her. Mm. And I think that that's really important to hold on to. You know, the decision not to text back doesn't define your relationship with Hannah, you know, at all. And I think having her validation of the power and control will and understanding what was happening and I just, I know you don't sit with much surety, but I can say with such confidence that who you are as a person weighed a lot more on what she remembers you by or knew you by than that decision with the text message. So much more, yeah, so, so much more. And it still, it still makes it hard. Like I, I try and say it from the perspective of, you know, of hindsight and you know if I had have known this then I would have done differently but the reality is it happened the way that it did I do my best to not 
take responsibility for what he did. I still have moments where, you know, maybe the anniversary of what happened comes around or her birthday comes around and I sit there and I go into those places. But I think the important thing is to be able to share from that experience that, you know, if we have an opportunity to be there for someone who might be going through something like that, then to take the opportunity to tell them that you're there for them or even take the opportunity to tell them that, you know, we need to figure out a new way to communicate. Yeah, if anyone who is listening to the podcast that is, um, you know, experiencing all those barriers of fear of not knowing what to say, what to do, or fear of making it worse, you know, be a beacon, you know, be that person that's present and um, tell someone you're there and you care and what can I do for you? Be present. You don't need to have all the answers, all the skills. You don't need to have the 12-step manual. You just need to, to be there, be present. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Joe, um, your experience um, and your story has really led you to establish Workhaven, which um, seeks to educate workplaces and organisations on how to support their employees. Can you please share some insights into the, the work that Workhaven does and, and your journey into that space? Yeah, so um, Workhaven obviously was born out of my own experience and understanding the issues that derived from the workplace having a limited understanding of DV and not having the right supports in place. Workhaven works with government, community, corporate organisations from a range of different industries to make sure they've got the right provisions and the right procedures and all of those things in place, but also to make sure that their support isn't the world's best kept secret. So undertaking training either for leaders and HR or beacons or undertaking communications activities to make sure that if somebody is in need of support or wants to learn more about DV, that they can find out more information. We also run a program that supports people to rebuild their lives after domestic violence, a 10-week online program. We work with everybody differently. Some of our clients are really mature in their approach to domestic violence. Others are just starting their journey, but we understand there isn't a cookie-cutter approach to DV Mm -hmm. in the workplace. So we really meet organisations where they are and develop Mm -hmm. a relevant and meaningful approach accordingly. Great. I think um, having conversations like these will really start to shift the culture. And I just think back to other cultural shifts that have happened, such as smoking, that if one of us was to come in here and light up a cigarette in this room, we all would be pretty vocal in saying, you know, step outside, there's an area for that. Or if we were to go for drinks after this and I have 10 schooners and I pick up my car keys to drive, the willingness of bystanders in those situations to come forward and say, hey, you know, don't be an idiot. Um, we'll get an Uber. Um, you know, it's against the law. You've got a job. You could lose your job if you get caught during driving. We're so readily able to intervene. And I I truly believe that holding people accountable for their disrespectful and abusive behaviour can become one of those cultural shifts where we say, hey, look, I don't have all the information in that situation where um, Baxter was saying to Hannah, like, you're coming home with me now. We can say, you know, like, I don't have all the information, but what I just saw then didn't sit right with me. And I do think there has been a shift. I look at eight years ago when my journey around domestic violence started and today and the conversations and how they've evolved and how people are starting to recognise even the more subtle forms of violence Mm. and I think that's really really good Mm. we've still got a long way to go but I think we're on the right bus yeah there's real subtle forms and and I'm just thinking back to what men who are using violence will say and most likely assuming what Baxter would have said is like you know you don't have all the information you know like I'm at home with the kids and doing this and you know she's a bad mother this and putting the other person down and 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 usually as bystanders it's probably the first thing that a perpetrator will throw our way is that you don't have all the information I think it's really good to pause for a moment and just say you know we don't need it i don't need all the information because what i'm seeing right now isn't okay yeah yeah definitely so thinking back to your relationship with both hannah and baxter and knowing the person that he was 
Why do you think he did what he did to Hannah and to the children? What, I guess, was his mindset or what belief system drove him to, to do such a thing? It's a million-dollar question. I think it's, yeah, I would love to be able to give a definitive answer around that. It's tough, but I think there was a, a really underlying belief system that he held that he should have control of his home. Um, he believed that Hannah didn't have the right to make choices for herself mm -hmm. and that the children were like Hannah and the kids were an extension of who he was as a person. They weren't mm -hmm. their own people. He was just making decisions based on what was best for him. And even when we had conversations around what is best for you, he would say, I've got a family and I need to keep them together. You know, I've got a household to run. This is what I need. Mm -hmm. And it was those rigid beliefs around what he thought was right that I think led him to thinking that if she is leaving me and she is developing this own world of her own and this own life of her own, then I need to stop that. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to let that happen. And I think along the journey of his life, those rigid beliefs were reinforced by the periods of time where he made jokes about her and people laughed and where he, um, yelled at her in front of people and no one said anything or did anything. When he said to Hannah, you're coming home with me and I stood there frozen. You know, all of those moments were opportunities where his belief that he had control of his home was reinforced. Mm -hmm. And when he started to lose control, when she started to, to move on and to create her own life, she was training in a gym, she was wearing clothes that he'd forbidden her to wear. She was um, you know, doing everything that she wanted to do while trying to share custody and do all the right things by him he still felt like he was losing control and he still went down that path because he wanted to regain that power and control or at least take away her ability to live her own life in her own way. So thinking back on, on everything that happened, what have you learned from your experience and, and where you are now because of it? Um, I guess it's, you know, it's in those deep regrets and those experiences where I talk about, you know, I was worried I was making it worse or I look back on the jokes I laughed at along the way. I'm incredibly privileged to be able to work with mate bystander and, and to talk about the work and actually get an understanding of what was really going on for me in that in those moments um, what was really stopping me and why wasn't I doing it and one of the biggest things is that I just didn't know I didn't have the tools that I needed to be able to respond and I've learned so much in working with mate and doing some research and you know redirecting my psychology degree into understanding all of those barriers that come up for people and the value of having different ways of approaching these situations because we know that every situation is different and every human is behaving in a different way but there's some common themes there's some common behaviors and I think the most valuable thing I've learned is like that I can just ask is everything okay whether that be to the person using violence or the person experiencing violence that can really open up a window of opportunity to show support to someone or to hold someone respectfully accountable or to give us an opportunity to be able to walk forward and walk alongside someone who might be in need of that kind of support. Thank you, Joe and Dave, for coming on and being vulnerable and sharing your experiences and sharing some tears along the way as well. Um, I don't know there's any amount of thanks that I can express, but thank you so much for not only sharing your experiences but dedicating yourselves to making this community a better place in the work that you do and taking such horrendous experiences and turning them into to beacons of hope for others is really powerful and I thank you both very much. I understand this conversation requires you to pour from your cup quite a lot and um, I just want to acknowledge that and, and really thank you both for your, your time and your story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic and family violence, please start the conversation, reach out for support or report to police. Head to our show notes for contact details and service support.